Plastic surgery is controversial. Critics claim that it promotes unrealistic beauty standards and that aggressive marketing targets impressionable people who are already under enormous pressure from social media to adjust who they are to meet some socialized view of what beauty is. At the same time, our society values personal autonomy and individual choice, and plastic surgery can have a positive impact on mental health, self-esteem, and quality of life. That's what the conversation today is about. I speak with double board certified facial plastic surgeon Gary Linkov about the ethics, impact, and practice of plastic surgery. The one thing that shines through the conversation is the care and compassion that Gary has for the health, well-being, and happiness of his patients. If you're not familiar with his work, I highly recommend checking out his YouTube channel, linked below. I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast, supported by the Andrea Von Brown Foundation. If you enjoy these conversations and want to help support me, the best way you can do so is by liking, sharing, and of course, subscribing. And now, I'm pleased to bring you Gary Linkov. I hope you enjoy. Escape Sapiens. I know that you started off with an interest in psychology and you also have training in painting and sculpture. What made you decide to go into plastic surgery and why specialize in hair restoration and uh, facial uh, procedures? Yeah, so in medical school, I always thought that I was gonna be an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon. Um, I liked uh, learning about you know the senses and um, I liked the kind of like more like microscopic type of work. Uh, but then in med school, I had a required week on opto, and then the following week was uh, ear, nose, and throat, or head and neck surgery. It's kind of a, it's also called otolaryngology. It's like has multiple names, but uh, it's basically everything above the clavicles that's not the eyes or the brain. It's like everything else. <laughs> so uh, I, I was never on my radar. Um, I remember as a kid, they wanted to remove my tonsils, and my mom always fought the doctors on that. So I never had my tonsils removed. But that's like as much like ENT that I ever really thought about. Uh, but then I loved that week on ENT. I, it just, I don't know, it just felt like I was more at home. Uh, I like the blend of microscopic procedures, but then we also would do like big open like neck surgeries, you know, um, cancer reconstructions. There was a lot more. There was plastic surgery with the eyes, but with, you know, the head and neck, uh, there was a little bit more involved. So I was just like, yeah, I think this is actually more of what I want to do. Um, I've always been interested in art, taking classes, courses, did some stuff on the side of my own uh, just since I was a kid. And uh, yeah, and then in, in so so I love the head and neck anatomy. Um, uh, you know, I liked, again, like the the different types of surgeries that it, it offered, but really it was still very much related to the senses and the anatomy. The anatomy was was very interesting and, and difficult to understand. It wasn't like something that you just read in the textbook and it like it had the only way for, for you to truly understand it is to like see it in, in real life and see different tissue planes open. And and that to me was was um, was fascinating, you know. So, so that that's what drew me to like the the specialty of like head and neck surgery ENT, and then during residency, uh, I I like the plastic side of things. I mean, I, there was otol, there was like deep ear surgery that we did. That we did a lot of sinus surgery. Again, those big cancers, like all that was interesting pediatrics. But I like the reconstructive plastic surgery, the trauma plastic surgery the cosmetic stuff was was interesting because of like the artistic things that you can apply because you, know, you have like this big gaping hole it's like how do you close it you know there's not one way right so you can get creative that way so then after 
residency and, and had a neck surgery, I went on to do a fellowship in um, facial plastics and reconstruction. And so it wasn't all cosmetic. It was like a portion was cosmetic, but a lot of it was trauma surgery. Um, a lot of it was cancer reconstruction. So, uh, you know, that was that was great. But then during that year, I did just like a side, like elective, it was just a, like a long weekend on hair restoration. And I had a full head of hair at that time. I, I mean, I didn't really know a lot about hair restoration. We had some required uh, like questions on our, like our tests in residency. So I had to learn it to a degree, um, but I never, I'd never seen a hair transplant. I never really looked into, I never thought like, oh, I'm going to be doing hair surgery, but I did this, uh, weekend course in Miami with a guy who had my background in, in head and neck surgery. But then in his fellowship, he did a lot of hair, which I did not do in my fellowship. So he ended up doing like a combination of facial plastics, but a lot of hair surgery. And then ultimately offered this course, which was free for fellows. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Spent some time in Miami. When I was there, I was kind of drawn to it. I thought it was like super cool. Uh, didn't really consider it before. And then his team proposed this idea that they knew that when I was done with fellowship, I planned to come back to New York and, and start a practice. And they're like, oh, do you want to work with us part time and essentially be our like New York City arm for their hair practice? And at that time, that surgeon was coming to New York uh, doing some some hair cases, uh, you know, every month or so. So I would like drop. So ultimately, we ended up doing this this uh, you know, deal or, or this apprenticeship in a way where uh, I had my own practice that I was just like starting from scratch. So it was very slow. I had a part-time job, actually two part-time jobs. One was virtual, one was at the VA in person. And then I worked for this guy, you know, doing, doing hair surgery that he would essentially send me patients and send me technicians. And I was like learning, you know, the art of it, the, the, the technical stuff. I was doing every part of the surgery with the technicians. I would spend time in his guest house in Miami, go to work with him like every once in a while to, to brush up on the skills, all that. Uh, and that that's kind of how I got into hair. Uh, and then uh, around the time that I was starting with him, I had like one big patch open up on my head, mm. bald spot, um, alopecia areata. And I had like on my legs, I had little spots like going back 10 years, but never on my head. So that was interesting. So I remember he used to like inject it with steroids, eventually whatever it grew back. And then around COVID time, which was literally like just a couple of months before COVID, uh, this hair surgeon and I decided to kind of go our separate ways. And I took all the hair activity under my belt. Uh, and I started to like rapidly shed hair. So I don't know if you had a chance to see, I have a video on alopecia areata, but like my journey should check that out. Cause it's literally like, my experience with hair loss which was rapid loss it's not like mm. most of the hair loss that i actually treat so uh, i developed uh, alopecia areata universalis so i lost all the hair in my body i had no eyebrows no eyelashes nothing uh no hair at all and that was interesting um so we'll get more maybe into that later but but so that i think it wasn't the reason why i got into hair was like i had a full i had like mm. No hair. I had like a really, really strong hair uh, up until I guess 34 or so. Uh, so that wasn't the reason I got into it, but it surely I think became the reason why I decided to like really focus in and almost mm. exclusively, you know, like dedicate myself, my practice to hair because I have a lot of other skills uh, that I don't use much of anymore, uh, which is a little sad in a way. 
but I'm able to really do like world-class like hair surgery mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, and build out a team around, around that. Um, so, so that's kind of how I got into hair even more. So you could really understand the psychological aspect of losing hair. Uh, yeah. It's actually a nice segue into the next question, which is, you know, plastic surgery is in some sense controversial, right? There are these stereotypes associated with it, uh, maybe vanity, breast jobs, celebrity, botched surgeries. You hear all these uh, different things in, in the news. How do you address those stereotypes and criticisms while highlighting the the valuable and meaningful aspects of the work that you do? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, basically, surgery, any kind of surgery, is like a, it's like a medication. You know, sometimes people think surgery medications, they think it's totally different things. But I mean, it's you're, you're trying to give people something to like improve their life or help them live longer or cure a cancer or, you know, help them feel better about themselves. It's all more or less, you know, interrelated. And when you have a medication, uh, you know, people talk about supplements and like whatever, but you know, if it, and some, some supplements obviously work and can help, but when you have like an actual, like, you know, drug medication, um, it has, it's like therapeutic window, you know? Um, so if you underdose somebody, then like nothing really happens. Like you're not really treating the, the condition that you're trying to treat. If you overdose somebody, if it's a strong enough medication, it can kill them, you know, and, and that's just how it is, or you can get really bad complications or side effects. Right. So it's trying to find like, where is, what's the like ideal, like therapeutic window. And so surgery is pretty much the same, you know, you can go in there and let's say you're doing a cancer surgery, right? Cause sometimes cosmetic surgery people think oh that is so different but it's the same same concept you're doing cancer surgery you go in there and you don't get the whole thing out right for that could be for different reasons it could be for lack of skill it could be just because you went in there and the cancer has spread and you know it's it's impossible to get it all out but either way whatever the reason is you've essentially underdone the surgery and that may have been in your control and may not have been your in your control and then the cancer spreads and it can kill the person whatever right they might need chemo whatever it is Um, or you can go in there right and you get the cancer out but you've also now destroyed some other normal tissue right and sometimes that's inevitable but sometimes it's actually preventable but you know, let's say someone is a little bit more, uh, I don't know, maverick, and they go in there and they, they take out, like, let's say it's a throat cancer, and they take out uh, more than what was needed. So now the person might be cancer free, but maybe they don't have a voice box, and they have to talk through a a hole in their neck, you know, Uh, and maybe that was totally unavoidable. And that just would have been the case anyway. You know, again, it's just as an example, Uh, But there are times when you can preserve an organ, for example, and still get rid of the cancer, right? So again, therapeutic windows. Sometimes the only way to help someone is to do something a little bit more uh, involved, right? Mm -hmm. To address the issue. So kind of translating that to cosmetic surgery, it's similar, right? So like some people think, oh, all I need is a little bit of Botox or all I need is a little bit of filler, right? these things are not without their risks. So even though it seems like a more minor thing, it doesn't always address the problem, right? Like someone's trying to look better. They're trying to look more lifted. They might get filler and it might actually make them look more heavy. They think that they got away with like a a cheaper, safer alternative. Meanwhile, filler has real risks. So when I go and I operate, uh, especially the surgeries that I'm doing these days, um, 
I'm not really like worried that I'm going to do something so catastrophic, especially most of my surgeries nowadays are under local anesthesia. People are awake. So, you know, the biggest risks with surgery usually are anesthetic complications. Mm -hmm. Like they get put under, you know, they could have a real problem. I mean, you know, there are rare things that can happen. Uh, when patients are awake, it's much harder to really like screw something up, at least as far as like purely like safety, you know, and from a safety mm -hmm. perspective. I mean, of course, aesthetic, that that's a different thing. But uh, so when I go into surgery, I'm not worried too much anymore about like that kind of stuff. When I was doing filler injections, in the back of my mind, knowing as much as I know about what could happen, if you don't know, then great. You know, you're kind of in your uh, naive approach, you're just injecting people, it's fine. But when you realize that like, you could get filler into a blood vessel and it could cause someone blindness, it can cause a stroke if it's like bad enough. I mean, those are the types of risks that just don't exist with especially the types of surgeries that I'm doing. I mean, there are surgeries mm -hmm. where those risks are real, but so, so in many ways, non-surgical things sometimes can be more risky than surgical. And so people, you know, they get confused about where the real risk lies. But with surgery, of course, there's risk and then there's therapeutic potential. So with cosmetic surgery, there is a place, there's a happy place where if you take the right patient, right, who's the right candidate, both anatomically mm -hmm. and like psychologically, you have the right candidate, you perform the right surgery that's appropriate for that person they can look much better, they can feel much better. And that's like a beautiful thing. Um, but if you choose the wrong person, if you choose the wrong surgery, if you perform the surgery incorrectly, or whatever, you know, things could end up even worse, you know, than where than where they started, you know, so the way I see it is a lot of times things aren't really being selected properly, surgeries aren't necessarily always being done appropriately, they're either being overdone, underdone right where you like let's say you're trying to do a facelift for someone and you decide you know what i don't really know the latest techniques because maybe you're an older surgeon or, or you're just i don't know you just like didn't really learn too much about facelifting and you're like i'm just gonna go trim a little bit you know make the same cuts as you would for any facelift but now i'm gonna just pull the skin really tight cut a little bit of extra skin suture it back up easy fix easy peasy you know you do it at local anesthesia in the office uh patient, you know, they look tighter. Uh, they feel maybe good for a couple of months. But then you realize that the scars have like widened because there's too mm -hmm. much tension. The skin has gone back down to where it used to be after a couple of months. Uh, the person is they're pissed off, you know, they're not happy. They're not happy. They have these scars, they, they don't look that lifted, they don't look too rejuvenated. Uh, that may have been a cheaper surgery, may have been a surgery that was mm -hmm. sort of easier to do. That doesn't mean it, it's it's achieved the outcome that was actually like sought after, you know. So, so I mean, I think a lot of this stuff comes down to nuances and not just saying like, oh, cosmetic surgery is good, cosmetic surgery is bad. It's like it can be good and it can be bad, you know. It's just like I think people haven't stopped to really think about the nitty gritty, like detailed, nuanced approach to, and this is like. Imagine, you know, I don't even, it's not like I was ever trained to do all plastic surgeries that are cosmetic, right? There's so many different kinds. So I usually will stay within my lane of the stuff I know really well um, to give people all this information so that they can make informed decisions, you know? Uh, but there's lots of other, you know, body plastics that I, that's not even my background. Uh, but each thing has like, it's like nuances of surgery and when you should do something, shouldn't do something. 
lots of different things. So, um, and that goes to another thing, which is like people should select surgeons based on the actual surgeries that they're doing most often and not just like, mm-hmm. oh, I found a great plastic surgeon, you know, he can do my facelift and my breast implants. Like, he's probably not going to do an A plus result on both, you know. Mm-hmm. If he's great at breast surgery, great. Go to him or her for that. But maybe pick someone else who's doing facelift surgery on a at least weekly basis, you know, if not even several times a week. But that's, I guess, a different topic. So then you mentioned good candidates. So for you, who who is it that makes a good candidate? And to what extent do you have to play the role of, say, a psychologist when you are speaking with people who are potential patients? Always. Always, you know, I, I want to take off the psychologist hat as early in the conversation as possible. Um, but, you know, I keep it on until that moment when I realize that the person who's I'm talking to uh, understands, you know, the the pros and cons of surgery is hearing me on, on you know, they, they come to me and they say, oh, hey, I want this. So, yeah, but like sometimes people just don't listen you know they don't listen and and that's not great for me right because if i feel like they're they're running a script in their head of like what they want and i tell them that based on what i'm seeing this is what i would offer you or this is the way Mm -hmm. i think you should like consider you know your options whatever some people most people react you know well to that and they're like okay yeah i hear what you're saying like that makes sense. Maybe they didn't think about it that way or or based on what I told them, then they respond. But I have some folks who they just have a there's something running in their head on loop and I can't break through to that. And that's mm-hmm. not a good candidate because, listen, surgery, um, you know, it's it's fraught with lots of things that could go wrong. Um not major things necessarily, but minor things sometimes. And I need to be able to work with them. Like, let's say they have an actual post-operative infection. Like, will they trust me? Will they listen to me? Will they? So if I can't connect with them um, initially in the consultation, then I just really don't take them on as patients. So that's one scenario. Uh, And then, yeah, I mean, there's anatomical considerations too. You know, someone who wants their lip lifted, but they have very little room here to do lifting, you know, on is not a great candidate, you know, even if in their minds, maybe they think that they'll look better that way. But I know that, you know, I kind of have to project out, like, let's say we do the surgery, then what are they really going to be? Am I going to, what the question I ask myself these days, more than anything else is like, can I make them happier? Mm -hmm. So if they come off as super depressed and super negative and, you know, they're kind of clashing with me on certain things, um then the answer is going to be no in my head right like but if you know they have the right anatomy and their ask is reasonable you know and they hear out what i have to say and they want to work with me then usually the answer is yes you know to that so that that's the way i see it in a in an elective purely elective cosmetic space that's the way i i frame it uh, these days in my head can i make this person happier um and yeah that that's just the way it is because it's different it's not like you know we're not doing cancer surgery where it's like you know it it wouldn't make sense for me to like i 
just ethically couldn't say no to I, I could say no to whomever because they no one needs this stuff uh, you know and I don't work with insurance companies I don't work at a big hospital like no one can tell me you have to operate on this person it's just like not uh, it's not the world that I'm in so they're picking me you know and they're interviewing me during a consultation but it's very much working the other way you know back at them even if they don't realize that so then what are the therapeutic outcomes for patients who receive safe and pro professional interventions by, by which i mean what does the research say what are the outcomes in terms of depression anxiety these sorts of uh, metrics is this well known and, and I, I guess the, sec the lead on question to that is, do you see it in your own patients? You know, I don't know about depression and anxiety improving. I'm not sure anyone studied that in particular. Johns Hopkins has some interesting literature from uh, Ishii uh, is her name. She's a, a surgeon and uh, they've done some nice studies on looking at people before and after, you know, hair transplant, rhinoplasty, um, facelifting and how they're perceived by others you know showing pictures to like you know hundreds of people and seeing like you know whatever like randomizing it and and seeing how people respond to a before picture and an after picture but shown you know not like a before and after but like you know randomizing it in different ways where uh, you can start to put the the numbers together and see okay well it seems like most people are more responsive to someone after they've had a procedure, you know, as far as metrics like successfulness, attractiveness, like that, those types of metrics. So more on the side of perception by others. Uh, but when you look at, I mean, there are definitely studies looking at satisfaction from, mm -hmm. from cosmetic surgery. I don't know if they've really looked at like, I mean, depression is, you know, I think it, it goes deeper than just like a, a cosmetic, like a look or whatever, you know, people have this and usually it, it affects many parts of their, their life, not necessarily just like the way they look. Um, so yeah, I think it would be harder to study, but, but overall, I mean, satisfaction rates are, are very high after like these common types of surgeries. It's maybe less obvious in certain things that you know are maybe less common types of procedures that haven't been studied as well but but yeah i mean most people who go to surgeons who perform like high quality you know surgery um end up happy i mean most of my patients are happy patients you know and and some of the surgeries i stopped doing were ones where the overall satisfaction in my opinion is generally a little lower you know, even mm -hmm. in good hands, even in good hands, because they're bigger surgeries. So there are more things. I mean, a hair transplant is big in that it takes a long time, but, um, you know, there's just a little bit more that can go wrong with like a, a rhinoplasty or a facelift. And then, you know, people sometimes might feel that, oh, it's good, but I wish I, you know, could tweak mm -hmm. it a little bit there, a little bit here. Uh, I mean, in hair, it, it's somewhat similar in that, like, even if I get a great result that looks very natural, some people will say, oh, I wish it was like a little bit more dense, you know, like maybe we can add some more density and you can come back and do that. Uh, but somehow most of the time it seemed like less of a failure than like if someone has a rhinoplasty and there's like a little bump that maybe the surgeon couldn't even, you know, prevent. Like it's just like a bump that formed as the as the area healed up. But people can get pissed, you know, they're like, oh, well, I went in for a rhinoplasty and you left me with this little bump. And it's like, okay, well, we can adjust that and make that even better. Um, but yeah, but over to go back to your question, 
overall satisfaction is is quite high again in practices that are doing things properly with the latest techniques and all of that yeah one thing that i'm pretty interested in is there's a stigma associated with certain interventions so for instance breast implants or having um, a hairpiece something like this whereas other interventions like uh, botox for example are sort of accepted and, and people talk about them openly why do you think it is that certain procedures carry this sort of a stigma and others don't particularly things like a hairpiece which doesn't really hurt anyone right um yeah. it's very minimal you mean like a like not a hair transplant but just wearing like a like a exactly, system or yeah. a, a wig or whatever exactly. yeah i think for a long time male plastic surgery you know has been treated very differently from like female plastic surgery uh, so that's that's getting to to the root of it a little bit right because women wear wigs all the time and like i don't think anyone cares right it's just like normal so uh it's taking it's taken longer for male plastic surgery to become like accepted and talked about uh, and it's still just only getting there uh so that, that so i think there's a gender you know difference uh there uh if you if you if you ask me more about like Botox versus like breast surgery, then I'd say the difference there is probably more just like the invasiveness of it. Mm -hmm. It's just like much easier and overall safer and cheaper to just get like a, some Botox than to undergo like a more permanent change. I mean, yeah, you can get your breast uh, implants reversed, but you're still going through like, you know, more legitimate surgery. Uh, and other surgeries are less reversible, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's one thing to get an implant and then they just take the implant out but if it's not implant surgery and you're actually like cutting and lifting and moving and you know things you can't easily reverse if you do a hair transplant it's very difficult to reverse a hair tra you can make adjustments but to actually take the hairs out is doable sometimes but it you know it, it has a lot of issues so they're bigger decisions and i think there's also more potential for people to look more weird for like longer periods of time so botox you can drop someone's uh you know eyebrow you can drop their eyelid and they might look a bit silly for a few months but then it's temporary it comes back you know then they look normal if someone got like a terrible breast augmentation then it just looks lopsided it, you know it's harder to reverse um they're with it they have it for longer if someone had a terrible hair transplant it just looks fake um, and again, much, much harder to reverse. So I think there's stigma on those things, probably for, for good reason, which is like, mm -hmm. hey, they should be handled with more caution, you know? So have you seen an impact from social media and, you know, TikTok now with AI and filters and this sort of thing? Have you seen uh, any new trends that are developing? Uh, people seeking augmentations more readily? What are the trends that you're sort of seeing? yeah there's definitely with gen z you know they're they're talking about it more they're more open about getting these procedures done like they'll get a procedure and then they'll like put it up on you know TikTok. so that sometimes will drive people to do more procedures you know because right? then they're like oh well my favorite influencer had it done so i might get that too and that you know as much as i like to discuss openness on the channel we've definitely raised this concern more recently which is that it's good to be open and honest, I think, you know, about stuff, especially if you're an influencer, to let people know that, hey, this maybe is attainable, you know, I'm not just like born genetically perfect, you know, I had, you know, work done. And so that, you know, I think is overall a good thing. 
But I think as more and more people go out there and actually share their experiences, you definitely run the risk of the pendulum swinging in the opposite direction where it's now just everyone feels the pressure to get work done, right? So that's not great. So yeah, I mean, but that's been a trend for sure, just people being more open and willing to share their journey um, with, with their procedures. Uh, other trends, I mean, there are surely like always like procedural trends, like for a while, uh, buckle fat removal in, in recent times was becoming very popular with a lot of celebrities getting it done where uh, basically cheek fat from the inside of the mouth is removed and it helped people look like skinnier in the mid face but it has a lot of issues and we have lots of videos that you know basically just caution people uh, and and really point them a little bit away from that surgery it's not my favorite but again there are some people who might be good candidates but it's usually not like a young person it's like maybe an older person where there's been like some herniation or pseudo herniation of that fat that if you're already doing a facelift sometimes from the inside you can approach that buckle fat, remove it. But that's like a very specific uh, case, you know, use uh, use case. It, it's not like most people, right? So, but you have a lot more celebrities getting that done. And then they might look okay now, even though some of them already look overdone. But like, how is that? How are they going to age? You know, they're young, they're like 20s, 30s. How is it going to look in 30 years? You know, people don't often think about that. Or facelifts are, are starting uh, to uh, you know be offered to, to younger and younger people and they're getting it done sometimes in their 20s a facelift i mean that i mean back in the day like maybe 10 years ago like no one did that so young would you ever do that for if a patient came in asking for that sort of a procedure no and, and to be honest with you that's another reason i had many reasons for walking away from certain types of surgeries but that was one of the reasons why i was more okay with walking away from facelift surgery because i had many young people coming to me you know like people who might want a lip lift but then like they're like oh and they also want a facelift and i'm like dude this is a bigger surgery this is like is a lot more potential risks you know and we're going to cause some scar tissue on the inside that you know if if you get there's a couple of issues one is the risk that a young person then takes on you know when they're like maybe at their prime for whatever they're doing uh, you know it's a setback to recover from a, a big surgery uh, two is like if they start so young with a surgery that's an aging face surgery, like classic, like aging face, meaning that the face will continue to sag as we age, uh, they're going to be getting more and more of these surgeries done. With each surgery, there's in a way more and more risk because when you're when you're doing surgery on a revision case, there's a lot more scar tissue in the way, so your risk for hurting nerves is higher. Uh, your risk for hurting the skin, the, the surface of the, is, is higher. And you're putting people through that risk over and over and over again because they're starting young. And I've, I've seen patients come in for other things now uh, for me. And they've gone to a surgeon for a facelift at like, you know, 28. By the time they're 30, they want another one. Because, you know, you can imagine at 28, they didn't really need it. At, at 30, they still don't need it. But yeah, sure, they're starting to notice that, hey, there's like some minuscule amount of drop of course because they're aging but it's like are we supposed to be getting facelifts every two years i mean it's just that's an extreme thing that i think carries too much risk to to have it make sense so yeah so i don't know i guess maybe i have like more of these 
ethical like boundaries than than some people but um i just i just wouldn't do something to someone that i wouldn't recommend to like a family member you know in terms of the skill set so obviously you've you've trained up to do these procedures this is something that i want to understand better because some time ago i was diving and one of my diving buddies was an eye surgeon and i was asking him all about how he trained and became you know an eye surgeon and he explained to me that they started off by doing practicing on the eyes that came from pigs right they had yeah. there's obviously a lot of uh, pig eyes that go to waste so yeah. but here you're working on a human's face right there's there's not really the same opportunity uh, as far as i understand so how do you get to the stage where you're confident to actually do these procedures on 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 someone who who wants to look better who, who you don't want them to look worse right and this is it's easy to put someone into the uncanny valley if you do the procedure wrong, I imagine. So this is this is a diff difficult um, difficult thing to achieve. Yes, uh, for sure. You know, so you start off just with like just basic tenets of surgery. You know, you learn some of that in medical school. You're assisting, not so much on cosmetic procedures. In residency, you know, for at least my path, uh, we worked with some private practice cosmetic surgeons and you know over time they would let us do a little bit so you kind of get into it but you know throughout training you're um you know you're working with tissue like live human tissue is just um you might be doing a slightly different procedure like it might not be purely cosmetic but you know you're reconstructing something on the face it's the same general steps you know it's just that they sort of maybe the patient needs it more you know because you're you're mm -hmm. trying to make them look more normal you know after they've had maybe like a cancer or a trauma but the skills that you're developing are still the same skills and then in fellowship you get to do a little bit more of the cosmetic stuff on real patients you know that your mentors your supervisors let you do so there's like a stepwise kind of increase but for sure at some point <laughs> all that training uh, ends. I mean, you know, you're still learning, but yeah, I mean, the formal training ends. Uh, you don't have like someone looking over your shoulder necessarily. Some some people after training, they'll join a senior surgeon, you know, they'll be the junior surgeon. Because, and in, in a way for hair, that's exactly what I did, right? So I had like, it was like an apprenticeship. I mean, you know, I only did more and more things as like my the senior guy started to feel comfortable with that. Um, but, but it still was like my malpractice insurance. Like it was still my patients, right? If they wanted to sue me, they could just sue me directly, you know? So you start to realize like, Hey, this is like on, on me now. Um, and you're still learning. I mean, you're still improving your skills, improving the actual procedures because, you know, the more obscure the procedure, the more there is for, uh, humans to learn about it and to get better at it collectively so then if you end up doing a lot of that surgery which is what happened with me and like lip surgery like certain types of lip surgeries i like started to write articles about it like you know put out these videos go to conference i still go to conference uh, every um uh, fall i go to miami for um, a conference where i go and i lecture at other surgeons on the things that i do a lot of so that they can improve their skills in things that you know like they they might do once in a while right so the people who are doing that thing all the time they start to see like little nuances little little pearls that that you gather and ideally you know you train the whole community in that so but you you start you, you have to like develop that on your own you know and you're 
from each patient you're picking something up like oh like i did this i use this suture and then you have to use it a bunch of times and then you're like okay i like how people heal more with the use of this suture than that suture so i'm going to switch mm-hmm. or i like how this instrument because like when you're training you basically just get handed instruments you know what i mean like you're not like buying your own instrument like it's just like whatever the hospital or the clinic has they just hand you okay here's your needle driver you know okay but then when you're on your own especially in a private practice you start to realize wait a second like there's lots of different versions of needle drivers and which one feels best in my hand uh, hands and you know you try them out and sometimes you know it just it's not a great flow to the surgery and you know whether or not that impacts surgical results, you hope not. But listen, you, you kind of are, it's like a kitchen. It's like you're kind of like figuring stuff out, putting ingredients together until you reach a point where you're like, okay, I'm getting very consistent results doing it in this specific way. Um, and I think based on my experience, it takes at least a few hundred surgeries in a specific surgical subtype to get to that point where you're like okay like i'm not changing anything about my technique like yes you have to adapt to each person's anatomy to each person's like wishes sure there's customization no doubt but the actual like general steps of the surgery and the actual instruments that you're using and like the you know the way you're throwing your stitch or whatever Mm. there comes a point where you're like all right like this is sort of as good as it gets in my hands, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. have a need for any further changes uh, because the results are coming. I mean, listen, results vary, right? Because people take care of their incisions in different ways. People just have natural healing abilities that vary. Um, you know, people have different anatomy. Sometimes you do the same surgery, remove the same amount of skin, and someone just has maybe more optimal underlying anatomy then makes their final result just look better. Like if you were to show you know, 100 people, 95% will say this person, they just look better. And it's because they started off looking better. Do you know what I mean? Like there's just, there's that, um, you know, so th- there's lots of things, but still like I've reached the point with the surgeries that I'm currently doing where like, I'm not really changing anything about the flow of the surgery. It's the same basic steps the same sutures the same needles the same whatever because it just like works in my hands you know i'm not saying it's the best way to do it i have colleagues who have slightly but what you also find is that the people who are performing at a very high level and producing consistent results in whatever surgery not plastic surgery but like the specific surgery that they're sort of expert in um, the techniques end up being very similar And that's what's interesting. You know, everyone kind of finds their own way, but like you start to kind of come to more or less the same basic things. There might be some some little differences, but it's going to be a very similar flow because because that's what's producing the best results. But then does that mean your the skill set that you have in doing cosmetic procedures is very transferable to people who have for example congenital defects or who have trauma or who are suffering from cancer uh, those other um repairing uh, situations yeah i mean in in many ways yes uh, again if if someone had like a facial trauma like today right like would would they want me to perform their reconstruction or someone who's 
just as well trained but is doing trauma repairs day in and day out i mean i would go with the guy who's doing trauma but if it's someone who you know uh doesn't do trauma often or is just isn't a great surgeon which exists you know some people are just either they're cavalier uh they don't have attention to detail i mean there's lots of things that make for not a great surgeon or they just don't care you know like some people just you know they're they don't really care they like they just want to go home you know so they're just like get done with the case just to get home earlier you don't want that person operating on you even if they're doing the same surgery day in and day out uh because because they might not be doing it very well but if it's someone who you know cares and is meticulous and has nice results yeah you want the guy or the woman who's doing it all the time i mean ideally so so right now yeah i mean there's certain things that i was trained to do that i did for a number of years but that i just don't do on a daily basis so maybe i'd be a little rusty doing it uh but but yeah but there are still certain basic things that i could pick up you know today or tomorrow and just do and still do a good job because you know i care about the patient mm -hmm. i care about doing good work you know you have to like care about your craft not everyone cares about their craft i mean you would think maybe that surgeons always care about what they're doing but that's not necessarily true uh, I've, I've seen that i mean you know some people just treat it as a job and ideally you treat it as more than a job you know so um yeah when you're doing revisions then or when you're working on a patient who has had uh, previous procedures done can you tell if their surgeon was good at their job is that easy for you to see in the operating room uh yeah now nowadays it is for for the surgeries that i do and i'll never say if some if someone has clearly like you know terrible work that was done my approach is never to really poo poo the other person i don't know i just i just don't do that um mm -hmm. i might tell the patient that look my approach is different i'll tell you why i do it the way that i do it uh but sometimes you know i could tell that the work was pretty good you know it was really good and i'll tell them i'm actually i'm always happy when someone else is doing good work because there's not that many of us in general like that are really doing like top-notch stuff you know in whatever area that they're in there just really aren't that many and it's almost sad but it's like you know because you need to invest yourself in like only a specific thing and you need to do a lot of that thing and you have to like care and like innovate and you know whatever so so when i see great work being done by like a colleague and i might not even know that person but then if i see the patient and it might be different reasons why they came to me and didn't go back to that other person it might be distance maybe they moved um maybe they were just looking for a fresh approach um but yeah i'll be the first to admit like i'll be like you know this this was really well done or sometimes it's like hair surgery for example that was done 20 years ago and the surgeon retired and now you know they they need someone else to do the next one uh and i'll be like yeah this is great i, I really love how natural things look and we're just going to build up the density or we're going to work in like a different area than where they worked originally but i i get honestly excited about it because i'm like this is quality stuff like i i just like quality like i like quality and most of like things i do in life and and i appreciate i appreciate you know quality things uh so when there's quality surgery being done especially aesthetic which is hard i mean in general surgery is hard but you know it's it's hard to aesthetically you know 
change someone in a way that they look better but still very natural you know mm-hmm. that's not that's not easy to achieve uh, so. then, then let's talk about some of the technical aspects and i suppose it'd be smart to start off with hair uh hair restoration so to start with how do you assess the underlying cause of hair loss because there's hormonal changes, disease, um, genetics, and so on. So it's, if I was to come into your office and uh, with, with some um, receding hairline or something, how would you first assess what was causing it? Yeah, so hair loss, it comes down to patterns, um, you know, very more often than anything else. So of course, like anything in, in medicine, taking a good history, you know, finding out when the hair loss started, if it's following like the natural, you know, course uh, is important um finding out family history you know is there hair loss in the family mom's side dad's side how, how do people look you know um i always like to know how active the hair loss is because that actually goes more towards candidacy for surgery because if someone's actively losing hair i'm not going to offer them surgery right away we want stable foundation always and that's that gets into the whole other thing about medical therapy and whatever, but I'm not going to go off on a tangent on that yet. But, but yeah, so, so, you know, you get a sense through the history, through just the way that it physically looks, you know, like doing this long enough, you start to see patterns and, you know, people sometimes ask me, Oh, what Norwood scale am I? I don't know if you've heard of Norwood scale, whatever. It's just like the scale in hair loss, but you know, it's like seven levels and like seven is like, you're like fully bald and you know, you have just a horseshoe and, one is like there's almost like no loss and two is like a little bit of corner recession but the truth is that there's so many variants of the scale that most people don't fit into you know one through seven and so i when people actually have a consult with me i'm always like who cares i'm like who cares and then they're always surprised because they're like what like they think i'm going to be like super technical but hair loss and hair restoration is a lot of gestalt you know like you just get a sense, you get a sense of the pattern, you get a sense through the story uh, um, of what the history, but also the current stuff of what's going on, you know, uh, so there's a lot of that. And then there's like, of course, versions of it that sometimes the patterns don't make sense. And that might make me want to, you know, dig deeper, see them in person before offering them surgery, do a biopsy of the scalp, um, run some blood work, you know, especially for women, because there's a lot of hormonal stuff that that can lead to, to kind of diffuse thinning. Um, but all of that while realizing that most hair loss is androgenic alopecia. Mm-hmm. That's just like the, how the numbers play out. So it's fair to, I mean, you always want to look for the zebras and the, you know, but uh, especially a condition like mine, you don't want to be operating on someone who has, especially as severe of a form of alopecia areata as I do. That's a, there's a different type of treatment for, for my condition. Uh, that I actually refer out to usually dermatologists who have like certain medications that they can prescribe. But yeah, so, so that, that's how I sort of assess, you know, that those are all the the things that I take into consideration. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very cautious before I like, especially I offer surgery because the last, the last thing you want is to pick the wrong candidate. They have like, say a scarring alopecia, you did the surgery, nothing grows, you know, there's always some theoretical chance of that, but Usually, if you're careful, you, you can select those patients and say, whoa, 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 you know, based on what I'm seeing, this doesn't look standard. We should do a biopsy. There might be some underlying inflammation in your scalp, for example. So, yeah. And if they don't want to do that, then the, 
they don't get surgery from me. They just go somewhere else, I guess, and get their procedure done. Mm. So I will put up those kind of barriers. And also on the medical um, history side, like meaning if they've had prior, you know, heart surgery, if they're on certain blood thinners, I get all that history myself uh, to this day. I, I definitely could, uh, I've, plenty of team members now I, I can easily get someone to uh, get that history for me to save time but I choose not to because um, I feel like if something gets lost and my nurse forgets to ask or she didn't hear that the person said they had something underlying um, not with their hair but like with their general health and then we miss that and then we don't run the proper testing before and then god forbid you know something goes wrong during the surgery because of some underlying condition i mean i just wouldn't be able to kind of forgive myself for that so uh so i still get and it doesn't take long most of my patients are very healthy i mean sometimes mm -hmm. people have conditions and we sometimes have to get medical clearance before even offering them surgery but yeah so i'm even cautious on that front too you know because i want people optimized for surgery um, and then the forms we send them you know, that give them all these things about, you know, they should stop certain vitamins and supplements and, you know, avoid coffee for X number of days before, you know, that lots of things to, again, just make sure that the surgical day goes as smoothly as possible. Could you walk me through the key technical steps? So what are the key steps involved for someone who is actually getting the surgery done? Yeah. So for a hair transplant, you know, there's three basic like steps, right? There's the part where you have to create the sites, like the homes of where the, the grafts will, will live. Like, so you have to create the like gardening, you know, you got to create the, the whatever, dig it out. Uh, and then you have to get the grafts. So you have to like have your donor area identified. Usually it's the back of the head, but you know, sometimes we're taking from the neck or the chest, like we get creative with that, but usually it's the back of the head. Uh, so you have to harvest the grafts, right? And Classically, um, there was like the strip technique where you cut out like a segment of the scalp and then break it up into the little grafts under the microscope outside of the body. And then around like 2010, um, FUE, which is the one by one extraction, became more popular. Excuse me. So that's like mostly what we're doing, especially for men. Uh, for women, we still 50 50 or maybe 40 40 percent of the time we'll do an FUT uh, strip procedure to get the grafts. But that's step two is get the grafts. And step three is to place the grafts into the, the homes or the holes or the slits, whatever you want to call them, that were created. That's it. I mean, it's a three-step process. There's, I mean, you know, that's the basic steps. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, nitty-gritty things. But um, but yeah, but but that that's what it is. You know, you need a source. You need like a destination. And you need to create like a home for the, for the, for the grafts. And how precise do you need to be when you're placing the hairs into the recipient sites? Well, so the two basic ways to like create the sites, one is with like a, like a blade or a needle um, where that's the way I do it. So it's like pre-made sites where you're making the sites first. And then later on, when you have the graphs, the team will put the graphs um, into the sites, right? And the site will dictate if it's done well and properly it'll dictate the angulation, the direction, the density, all that. It's like the blueprint for the result is how the sites are made. So I always do that 100% of the time because that's that's the result. Um, of course, it matters how your team handles graphs and all that stuff. But the other way to do it is to use what's called an implanter pen. 
and that's like this little pen like thing that has like a release button on it and so you feed the graft into it and it could be sharp or blunt actually but let's say it's sharp so you you put it into the skin to the scalp and you just release and there's like a twisting motion and it leaves the graft in place so you don't have to then pre-make the site for the graft it's essentially like a single motion that's that's kind of those are the ways to do it you know and so some people i just learned more on the side of pre-made sites so that's what i feel comfortable doing other people learn more about like the the inter implanter pens there's pros and cons of each but um you know i i like the flexibility that the pre-made sites give me because once you start using the pen uh there's the risk of popping anytime you start placing graphs you can get popping and that's like you you put one in and then the neighbor starts to come out so now you've got to readjust and get the neighbor back in and then come back in and put your so it just kind of slows things down in my opinion so we're more efficient uh making sites early on in the day and i always do that mm -hmm. then we harvest the graphs and then the afternoon is placing placing one by one so how many hours does this take long time yeah so we're doing bigger surgeries for hair than we used to right when i started it's like you know smaller procedure can take all day so it's like you know i was doing maybe up to i don't know 1400 graphs 1500 graphs something like that 1800 felt like a a forever day you know like it was never going to end um nowadays we're doing cases of like 2500 2600 sometimes even a little bit more uh, and yeah i mean it's still a long day like it could take us like 10 hours sometimes even a little bit more because there's like actual working time and then there's like just time that people are in the office because it takes us time to to set everything up to figure out a plan i'm super like uh i mean we we released a video a few weeks ago on like it's called how to fix a receding hairline and it's actually like my thought process for designing hairlines so uh i'm very anal about that process so a lot of people just draw a line you know they just come in with a sharpie and just draw a line a thick line and it's just like that's what we're doing you could do that i mean you know you can eyeball it and just draw a line and that's fine but you know we measure and i use little tiny dots instead of lines because i don't i mean when you have a line this thick are you putting the graphs on the top of the line the bottom of the line the middle where are you putting the graph so I use like little tiny dots and everything is kind of measured and like, you know, it's just, there's an artistic side. And that's, I think something that people don't realize, you know, they're, they're focused on how, how much is it per graph? Am I going to Turkey? Am I staying? It doesn't matter. It's just like you pick your surgeon and someone who has like an artistic view on things and doesn't, you know, if it's cheaper, great. If it's Turkey, if it's Mexico, it doesn't matter. It's just like, I always tell people like, you got to pick, pick the surgeon. Don't focus on, this place is a little cheaper than that place like it's that's not you know the, the people are and, and then they also people will hyper fixate on like which tools being used you know it's like are you using the artist robot are you using you know the latest implanter pen like what's what what tool are you and, and i honestly uh i i used to be more like you know let me tell you what we're using and i still i mean i still do i don't want to be rude but but I'm like, and sometimes I just come out and say it. I'm, I'm like, it shouldn't matter to you what I use. Um, and that's truly how I feel. Because like, if you go for a haircut, right? Like, are you picking 
assuming you know like it's someone who like you know, not just like you randomly, you're like, oh, I've seen a haircut. But if you're like, you know, your regular person, like you're picking the person, right? Who's going to cut you. Like, are you ever asking them like, what scissor are they using? Or like, what's the spray? I mean, it's just like, they use what they use, like, you know, but you like what they create, right? And so you go back to that person. So it's really like that with surgery. But I think people get, they, they get lost. They, they don't, they don't know the questions to ask. They don't know what to look for. Uh, so they're asking about the robot. They're asking about, you know, uh, you know, whatever. I don't know who's doing the surgery. I mean, there's certain questions that are fine to ask, but it's just like, just like look at the before and after gallery and get a sense. Is this like artistic work? Is this honest representation of results? And do you maybe, can you find something else out about the person online? Do they have reviews? Do they have some video clips on there? You know, something to give you a sense of comfort. And then, and then, you know, call the office, schedule an appointment. It's shocking how many hair clinics have like, uh, it's the uh, it's the sales rep who's doing the consultation often, which is insane. But that's how it is. I mean, in most other cosmetic surgery clinics, that's just not really the case. Like if you're if you're getting a breast augmentation and you schedule a consultation, you're going to meet with the surgeon. But for whatever reason in the hair world, uh, and I think maybe because of the Bosleys of the world where it's like, you know, the the franchise mentality, right? If we wanna improve our bottom line and, and overall kind of uh, business efficiency, yeah, stick the patient, stick the sales rep in there, you know, have them talk to the patient, you know, keep your doctor for, for other things, whatever. Um, but like, it's not fair for patients because like they're trying to get a surgery. They're not trying to get a haircut here, you know? Um, so, so that's, yeah. So make sure that like for patients that they're talking to an actual surgeon in consultation and not like you'll talk to the salesperson and they show up day of, and then maybe they'll shake hands with the surgeon. I mean, that that's not right. Before we have to wrap up, I want to ask you about facial procedures uh, a little bit. When it comes to rhinoplasty, so nose jobs, yeah. what can you actually achieve? So in terms of shape, size, uh, you know, realignments, what 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 can you achieve, and and what's out of uh, the realms of possibility for rhinoplasty? It's always easier to take away than to add in, right? So with filler, for example, people get these liquid rhinoplasties and. They're just adding material, right? And so a lot of times it's not giving people the look that they actually want, which is usually to take away. Uh, sometimes people have like very flat um, hump, like like the dorsum we call it is super flat or scooped. And those individuals might want it to look a little bit more streamlined and a little bit more projected. So then you have to add, and that's actually a hard thing. I mean, assuming you're not getting filler, um, to surgically augment and to add or let's say if someone has a, has had a prior rhinoplasty where they they took away too much cartilage right and now everything's kind of like caving in and they can't breathe and they're they're miserable and you're looking to build that up hard very hard i mean you need to get cartilage from somewhere so if the cartilage in the nose was previously exhausted now you got to go to get ear cartilage now you got to go to get rib cartilage either from the person or from a cadaver uh, or you're using like um, artificial materials like uh, like silicone, you know, which isn't great at all, but sometimes it gets used. And so building and getting building materials like a house, I mean, it's hard work, you know, 
to knock it down and to take away i mean to knock things down well is hard right because obviously most of the time we're still taking away but like let's say someone has like a hump like me and you're trying to like smooth it out there's a series of steps to make that look natural and to not overdo it again therapeutic window you know you can scoop out the nose and drop the whole thing and make it look terrible uh, you can also do so little that I'm left with the same exact hump that I had. So you're trying to bring it down, but safely and securely and in a way that it won't shift over time. So uh, there's an art and there's a science and there's just the, the feel of it. And you try to, you know, achieve your patient's goals because some surgeons, they go in and they don't really care what the patient wants. They're like, I'm going to give you the nose you need. That's the mentality sometimes. It's a little bit more old school, but and, and the patient comes out of it, and yeah, maybe their nose doesn't look too bad, but like that's not what they wanted. So mm. there's no like time to like let's figure out what you want. Like what like to me that's kind of obvious, right? Like you want to hear the goals, but it's amazing how many surgeons they don't really listen to the goals. They're like, I know what you need. You know, we need to get the hump down, we need to bring the tip in. What if they didn't want the hump down? What if they just want a little bit of tip work? What if they just want a little rotation of the nose up? So so trying to figure out what the person wants is so critical, right? And then being able to execute and then hoping that, because the results take like a year, hoping that nothing gets disrupted, that they don't bump their nose accidentally, that you know you don't get excess scar tissue that grows that makes your results look worse than they are. But it's like not necessarily your fault. Or if the person has really thick skin the swelling is going to linger for longer and so you know everyone always says one year the 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 nose doesn't read the textbook just because we tell patients it might take a year for you to see your final results sometimes it takes a year and a half sometimes it takes two years and the thicker the skin the longer it 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 retains the edema you know that so it's going to it's going to look bigger for longer so it's going to take you longer to figure out you know, what's the final result of the surgery that happened maybe two years ago? So one thing I want to understand better is when you're reducing the size of someone's nose, how do you do that without having excess skin and, and scars? Well, for, I'll, I'll tackle the scar question first. So for scarring, uh, there's two approaches to a rhinoplasty. You can do an open approach where you make a cut right here, and that usually heals extremely well, usually much better than my lip lift scars. So, cause I used to do both at the same time. So, cause the skin is thin and, and there's not much tension on it. So it heals really well right under here. But there's also ways some surgeons choose a closed rhinoplasty approach. And that's all cuts made internally on the inside. And you can access the entire nose just through cuts like that. But there's uh, there's no reason for additional cuts, you know, unless you're, again, you're doing some complex cancer reconstruction. So um, yeah, those are the common, like, so even if you have an open approach and you get this little scar, almost on everyone, it heals so well over time. It's just like not, it's almost like a moot point if that you have an open scar there, it doesn't really matter. It looks great. Uh, excess skin. So yeah, when you drop the nose down or like you deep project the nose, there are times when you get a little bit of extra skin and you can, especially if you have an open approach, you can resolve that excess through, you know, before you close, you just remove a little bit of skin, but there's usually not, I mean, these changes are not so dramatic, like for a facelift, for example, where someone's like super saggy, let's say, and you can remove like this much skin, you know, um, but uh, for rhinoplasty, you don't usually have a ton of excess. Okay. 
One of the common procedures that people have done is, is fillers, lip fillers and so on, cheek fillers. I don't understand how the cavities under the skin actually work. Do, do you have one large cavity or do you, do you inject into multiple places? And, and if you do inject into multiple places, how can you reverse the procedure if someone doesn't like that? If, if you've got, you know, if you imagine thousands of locations. Yeah, great question. So there are, uh, you know, different layers to, well, to our tissues. And when you're injecting filler, it's all about what you're trying to, you know, achieve with that filler. So if you're in the lip, for example, first of all, there's no real bone here. I mean, unless you're going right onto the like the maxilla or the mandible, which uh, wouldn't make much sense to plump up the lips by injecting onto the bone. You know what I mean? So if you're plumping up the lips, your injections are generally into the lip itself, right? So that's like a soft tissue injection. If you're working on the um, the cheekbones, your injections tend to be deeper onto, onto the actual bone. Partly it's because of where blood vessels are and you're trying to stay safe and avoid some of the major blood vessels. And sometimes being on bone is actually a bit safer than not. Uh, but it's also like what you're trying to achieve. So for example, for the medial cheek, usually you're going to come off of the bone. For the lateral cheek, you're going to stay on bone. So there's like different sort of nuances with that. And then what was the second part of the, oh, if you're not happy with it. Yeah, but keep in mind, look, filler can migrate and it doesn't, you know, it can be clumpy sometimes, it can migrate, it's not perfect. And yeah, so when you go to dissolve, if you've injected an HA, like hyaluronic acid filler, you can use hyaluronidase to break it down. Uh, but, you know, if it's now in multiple planes, because your injection has been like through multiple planes, you can imagine it's hard to dissolve all of it. So you might get a partial dissolving, but you might not get it all. And especially if it's been many years and now it's like kind of migrating a little bit. So people are realizing now filler lasts a lot longer than was previously thought, even the temporary filler. So I realize we have to wrap up. Let me ask you one just fun question uh, before ending off. So... I'm not sure whether this would ever happen, but let's imagine that someone came into your procedure and they just wanted to look different, unrecognizable. So they're on a witness protection or whatever, make up whatever scenario you want. Say it was me, what, what steps would you go through uh, to augment this person so that no one would ever recognize them, but they would still look natural? I mean, I, I wouldn't offer that type of surgery myself like i you know i, I wouldn't take them on this is an imaginary ima yeah to imagine yeah so uh, implants can change someone's face quite a bit and uh, there aren't that many places that are routinely doing facial implants but like they can be powerful in changing someone's look so both ways so basically like you have to do something that's a little bit more bony so either you're using implant to augment their natural bony structure or it's the other way around where you may have heard of like v-line surgery for example it's no. thought of as being a bit more feminizing but i mean you know i guess that's one way to change them uh but like for uh for trans people who are transitioning uh they go and they get these surgeries sometimes where if it's like a, a male to female transition and they're they're reducing the the contour of the of the mandible by like having it shaved down you know the chin gets a little bit less wide you know here you can kind of shave it down so making those types of adjustments can really change someone's appearance quite a bit um, you can also do that to the brows like the brow bones you know you can kind of shave them down 
Um, or you can put an implant to go the other way around to make the, the brow ridge look more masculine. So I would say, especially like if you're looking at mask procedures that, that cause someone to look more masculine or look more feminine, that can surely change someone. But if they're, if they're just trying to stay within the gender and look different, I mean, you just take whatever features they have and you kind of like you have to tweak them, either augment them or reduce them. <clears throat> but certain things when you do that, will make someone look either more masculine or feminine. What are you most excited about in the future of plastic surgery? I mean, we released a video about like AI and how it might change how we look at like basically the the utility of plastic surgery for better or worse. Like, will it make plastic surgery obsolete in five years or will it actually make it more popular? And we saw it from both perspectives. Uh, I thought the video should have done better than how it did, but you know that's the YouTube uh, algorithm. Uh, but I don't know if I see like plastic surgery changing like that that much over time. I think the biggest change over the years has been people's willingness to talk about it. So mm. that's probably one of the biggest changes in. I mean, since the birth of at least cosmetic plastic surgery, you know, like people are getting cosmetic plastic surgeries in like the 60s, 70s, maybe even 50s. It just wasn't talked about. It wasn't commonplace. The procedures weren't maybe as effective. It was only available to like, because think about it from the doctor's perspective. It wasn't like there was a whole network of cosmetic surgeons. Like, uh, so it was a little bit more, you know, under the rug, like kind of like secretive. Uh, and then, you know, it started to hit Hollywood and still super secretive 80s 90s i mean it's only like what over the last five years that somehow for whatever reason new generation social media COVID, i don't know but people have just been more open about it and so i'm optimistic about that but at the same time i think we need more people like me wanting to talk about uh, not just like pushing surgery onto people and being like, oh, well, I make money this way, so get more surgery. But like kind of really diving deep into like teaching people about the nitty gritty specifics of the of the surgeries, like the steps, like the general steps and and what it's about and how they can make informed decisions and also raising like risks of certain procedures, both uh, surgical and non-surgical in again in whatever specific area that they deal with you know like i don't i couldn't have a conversation like that about breast surgery in the type of detail that i can about a lot of facial stuff so um so why not have a breast surgeon speak to all this stuff but what i see on like instagram for example is much more yeah there's some education but the driving force seems to be a lot more on the marketing front you know, and these short videos sometimes don't do these topics justice. So I'd like to see more people creating long form content to educate about plastic surgery. So um, I think that will come, you know, but it's hard work. I mean, it's a lot of work because, look, these are surgeons who have busy lives, you know, in and inside and outside of their actual jobs. And now, you know, they're being asked to, like, make long videos like that's, you know, it's not always fun for, for everyone, you know, so. I find it fun because I like to educate and it's just like a, a good thing I think to do, but, but not everyone sees it that way. So, but you know, I, with short form, I, I see some colleagues taking really interesting, clever approaches to still educate and teach and to really like show people like recovery, like 
being more honest about like look people look like crap you know a few days after surgery like they don't look good you know it takes time so i see some colleagues like showing people over time not just like the before and after where the after is like you know three months later a year later so that's that's good you know that that's great so we need just just more of that honest uh, education when you're 80 years old and you're retired and you're looking back at your career what's going to make you happy and what are you going to be most proud of yeah that's interesting um uh, i think when i'm 80 yeah <laughs> that's a long time away but but yeah it'll probably creep up on me yeah i mean i think reaching and that's what i've realized you know youtube versus just like my practice like i can only do like a couple hundred maybe up to i don't know 400 surgeries um, a year you know with the, the type of stuff that i'm doing now because hair takes all day you know and uh that's that's a good impact but you know that's limited right so if i can use the online platform to reach you know millions of people which is where it's heading i mean we already have over 100 million views like total views on the channel and uh you know, if we continue at that rate, and I, I also want to get into podcasting and bring interesting people on in the beauty sort of aesthetic space. And if we're just like creating a more transparent, like honest community uh, that helps people feel good about themselves and like really doing that on like a large scale, like internationally, because I have ideas for like an app, like a beauty app, like all these ideas. So, so if I can do that and just reach like a ton of people, but then like, have like a very positive spin on it and not just like you know doctors making money and patients getting stuff done but like you know having a, a a richer experience for everyone so they can make like the best decisions possible i mean that will feel great you know and i think there's there's a need for that it's not like it's being done and you know i'm just like another guy like i, I really do feel like we're, we're pushing the envelope and we're just kind of starting to push the envelope because i have like bigger ideas for for how do we get this out to like you know again not beyond the united states like just internationally like so that because i want to find good like matchings between providers and patients and i expect that the the providers you know need to be at their optimal you know what i mean like they need to if they if if they don't know enough then fine learn you know figure it out learn train under somebody but don't start doing stuff willy-nilly like you know really offer people the best quality stuff and then i want patients to then find their way and, and and stay safe you know throughout all of it because i think there's a lot of good that can come out of plastic surgery cosmetic plastic surgery and i see that i see it in my practice i see it with my colleagues i mean people are generally very very happy if the right thing gets addressed in the right way but there's a lot of potential problems and a lot of people who take advantage because it's more cash based it's not like insurance usually and people take advantage you know they they want to do the, the least amount to make the most amount of money and that's not good that's not good and then people can get hurt and then it honestly ruins it for like sort of the rest of us because like right if there's like a botched result that gets spread around the web like oh my god look what cosmetic or someone dies from a cosmetic surgery it's like oh my god you know they're killing people for no reason they don't even need to get these surgeries and it's like that there's a reason why that happened it's almost never i mean there's always like freak things that can happen in the best of hands but it doesn't really happen i mean it, that kind of stuff happens in places that are not as like monitored not as 
safe the, the people are doing things they shouldn't be doing um so so yeah so just having like the best overall community that almost self-polices and not depending on like the government to come in and like police us to like be safer and do better you know that would be great gary linkov it's been a pleasure thanks shane yeah this is great i love talking thanks about this on. stuff so thank you for having me appreciate it